Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're heard in over 60 countries around the world. And we are the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. We appreciate all your feedback, so keep it coming. Last night I went to the premiere of a great movie called Truth. It was a story of the 60 Minutes piece that uh, about um, George Bush and his time in the National Guard, time or not time in the National Guard, um, that was on 60 Minutes and brought the downfall of Dan Rather. It is a great movie, so if it comes to a theatre near you, make sure you go to it. I'm also hoping to have the director of the show um, on air with us in the near future. So I spoke to him last night at the premiere and um, I hope that he will... Come along and join us. Now, this show is primarily about entrepreneurs. We try to provide you with information that can assist you to become more successful and avoid making the mistakes that many of those, many of those 98% of people who failed have probably made before you. No point repeating mistakes. Now, being an entrepreneur is tough. So it's really critical that we make the right decisions a hell of a lot more often than not. Now, we each make thousands of decisions every day, and uh, being intelligent beings, we believe these decisions are rational. But in reality, many of them are not rational because we have inherent biases that skew our decisions one way or another. You know, when you get up in the morning, deciding what you're going to eat or when you should make the big career move or when you should ask the boss for a raise. Research suggests that there are a number of cognitive stumbling blocks that affect our behaviour and prevent us from acting in our own best interests and making a truly rational decision. It's obviously in our best interest to minimise the decisions that we make that are not made in a rational manner and that screw up on us. So I thought I'd discuss with you some of the common biases that do screw up our decision-making. Firstly, people are over-reliant on the first piece of information that they hear. For example, if you're sitting down with the boss and uh, whoever makes the first offer establishes a range of reasonable possibilities in each person's mind. So they've set the parameters limiting the, um, the chances of a rational discussion outside those parameters. And I remember an instance where um, I was negotiating a big contract and uh, I'd spoken to them, the people and um, I thought a fee of around $250,000 would have been good and I employed a manager who got 650000 for me and uh, – the difference was he didn't allow himself to be boxed in like I had. The second reason that uh, people make bad decisions is that they overestimate the importance of information that's directly available to them. For example, I might argue that smoking is not unhealthy because, look, my grandma smoked until she was 102. She had three packs a day. So how the hell can smoking be bad for you? Well, that's obviously a bias. Thirdly, the probability of a person adopting a particular belief increases based on the number of people who hold that belief. So when you're in a board meeting and you've got 15 people around the table, this is one of the reasons why those meetings become unproductive. Because out of the 15 people, if eight of them have a firm opinion on something, others around the table are likely to be swayed by that opinion and succumb to that belief. 
Fourthly, failing to recognize your own cognitive biases. That's a bias in itself. So we notice biases and motivational biases and cognitive biases much more in other people than we do in ourselves. The fifth common bias that screws up our decision-making is called choice-supportive bias. When you choose something, you know, you tend to feel really positive about it, even if the choice has flaws. For example, you might think that your pet dog, Rufus, is awesome. He is an awesome dog, despite the fact that it actually bites people. So because of your bias about him being an awesome dog, you overlook the faults. The number six common bias is the tendency to see patterns in random events. Now, this bias is the key to very many gambling issues, like the idea that black's going to come up because the last seven have been red. Well, that isn't true. You've still got a 50-50 chance of either coming up, despite the fact you've had seven reds in a row. But our bias tells us that it's going to come up black. The seventh bias that screws up decision-making is confirmation bias. This is when we um, listen to a conversation or listen to a number of people, but only hear the information that confirms our preconceptions. I think that it's that there's not climate change, and I've spoken to four people that think there is climate change, so I'll keep talking until I find somebody else that agrees with me that there isn't climate change. So um, there's a hell of a lot of people take that attitude today, and most of them Republicans. The number eight bias is when people favour prior evidence over new evidence. For example, people were very slow to accept that the earth was round because they had maintained their earlier understanding that the planet was in fact flat. The ninth bias is our tendency to seek more information to try to justify our beliefs. Now, more information is not always better. So we keep getting, we, we look up some information, we don't like the results we're getting, so we keep looking up more and more information until we get the information that suits our perception. Bias number 10 is when we ignore dangerous or negative information. It's uh, kind of called burying your head in the sand like an ostrich. For example, um, when, when the market's going great, investors look at their portfolio 10, 10 times a day to see how much money they've made in the last hour. When the um, market is tanking, research suggests that investors check, check the value of their holdings much less frequently. Number 11 is outcome bias. It's when you judge a, a decision based on the outcome rather than how exactly the decision was made in the moment. Um, for example, let's say you go to Vegas and you win a shed load of money. That doesn't mean that gambling your money was a smart decision. Overconfidence is another bias that, is, except that, that affects our judgment. Some of us are too confident about our abilities, and this causes us to take greater risks in our daily lives. You find that um, experts are much more prone to this bias than lay people, since they're more convinced that everything they say is right. The 13th bias that screws up decision-making making is the placebo effect. Now, this is when simply believing that something will have a certain effect on you causes it to that, have that effect. Um, 
this is the same as um, in medicine where people are given fake pills and they often experience the same psychological effects as people given the real drug. So that's also a bias. Bias number 14 is a pro-innovation bias. This is when the proponent of an innovation tends to overvalue its usefulness and undervalue its limitations. Now, in this high-tech world, with millions of um, entrepreneurs out there inventing stuff every day, this innovation bias happens all the time because they think that their invention is the greatest thing on the planet. The 15th bias at opposite... Start again. The 15th bias that often prevents us from, mis- from making rational decisions is the tendency to weigh the latest information more heavily than older data. Investors often think the market's always going to look the way it looks today and therefore they make some unwise decisions. The 16th bias is our tendency to focus on the most easily recognisable features of a person or a concept. Like, you know, when you think about dying, you might worry about being mauled by a lion. Whereas what you should be thinking about, well, statistically, is um, getting killed in a road accident. So instead of being careful around lions, be more careful when you're behind the wheel of your car. The 17th bias that screws up decision-making is called selective perception. This is where we allow our expectations to influence how we perceive the world. An experiment involving a football game between students from two universities showed that one team saw the opposing team committing more infractions. And uh, I think that's unbelievably common. The 18th bias occurs because of stereotyping. This is when you expect a group or a person to have certain qualities without having real information about them. Uh, This allows us to quickly identify strangers as friends or enemies based solely on first impressions, and these are very frequently way off the mark. I think politics is a great example of that. If... um, If you're a Republican, you expect every um, liberal or Democrat to look like a hippie. And if you're a uh, Democrat, you expect every Republican to be walking around with an AK-47. So that's stereotyping. The 19th bias that screws up decision-making is called survivorship bias. This is an error that comes from focusing only on surviving examples, which causes us to badly misjudge the situation. For example, we might think that being an entrepreneur is easy because we've seen a hundred stories about successful entrepreneurs and very few stories about the 99% who failed. So it's very easy to sit there and say, geez, I'm going to become an entrepreneur because look at all these success stories. But you forget about the 10,000 people who have slashed their wrists and taken an overdose of pills and jumped off very high buildings because you don't hear about them. The final bias that screws up decision-making is the zero-risk bias. Sociologists have found that people love certainty, even if it's counterproductive. So eliminating risk entirely means that there's no chance of harm being caused. This will strongly influence influence your decision and increases the likelihood that you may well be wrong. As I was going through these biases, I I was thinking about them and I... I thought, gee, there's a number of these where one of these biases could affect me in my decisions. And I'm sure if I spent more time thinking about it, I'd find even more inherent biases in my thinking. 
And when so many decisions we make are critically important, we really should keep these biases in mind in order for us to make the best decisions. Because, you know, one bad decision can really screw you up forever. So you need to make sure that none of these biases are creeping into your thinking. Now, here at the, at the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, we love entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are what employ the most people. Entrepreneurs drive the economy. Entrepreneurs are exciting. Entrepreneurs do great stuff. Well, U2's top-earning celebrities, according to Forbes magazine, number one is a 25-year-old video game-playing jokester that we all know, PewDiePie. Very famous and Felix Gelberg tops the list of people who spun short online videos on YouTube last year, and he took home $12 million. Not bad. And, you know, YouTube stars make money mainly from getting paid to interact with products on their channels, and they share the ad revenue with uh, YouTube. But some also star in movies, write books, go on tours, sell music, cut endorsement deals. You know, they're mainly a hit with younger audiences and brands who are trying to reach the next generation of consumers. Two acts are tied for second, who both earned around $9 million. Comedy prankster duo Schmosh and the Fine Brothers. They made about $8-9 million each. Dancing violinist Lindsay Sterling ranked fourth with $6 million. Tied for fifth were comedians Rhett and Link and video game commentator known as KSI, and they both made four and a half million. Makeup artist Michelle Fan was seventh with three million. If Michelle Fan is making three million bucks by people sitting there watching in their tens of millions, watching her tell them how to put their makeup on, why do so many women do such a dreadful bloody job of putting on makeup? There's a question for you to think about. The number eight slot was a tie at 2.5 million, shared by comedian Lily Singh, or otherwise known as Superwoman, prankster Roman Atwood, and chef Rosanna Pansino. Now, that's pretty good work if you can get it. They're all unique and great at what they do, and they deserve to be walking away with wheelbarrows full of cash. And it just goes to show you that if you're a creative and really put your mind to it and persevere, you can achieve at anything that you want to put your mind to. Now, if you're anything like me, you love entrepreneurs, and my guest today, Terry Drayton, has spent the last 29 years doing nine startups. He was an investment banker before that, helping other entrepreneurs to raise money. Terry's the CEO of new startup Storage, with a double R, in Seattle, and he's living proof that you don't need an education to be a successful entrepreneur. I'm Bob Pritchard. This is Voice America Business Channel, and I'll be back with Terry right after this short break. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. 
That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show. We give you an insight into the lives of some of the most interesting business people, the services they provide, and what makes them tick. You know, it's very difficult to create a successful business. doesn't matter how good you are, how clever you are, it is bloody tough. And we need all the help we can get. And that's why it's so important for all of us, doesn't matter what sort of business you're in or what level of business you're in, to have mentors and to take on board the advice that you can glean from all of the people that have gone before you and been successful. You can get a lot of good advice from people who haven't been successful too because um, you learn a lot more from your mistakes than you do from drifting through with successes. Today's guest is Terry Drayton. He loves entrepreneurship and he thinks that it's very important for our society and our country and I agree. Um, Entrepreneurs are what makes this country great at what drives our economy at what employs our people and uh, and it inspires enthusiasm and and great productivity and it's it, it's the perfect gateway to upward mobility and overall prosperity now terry spent 29 years doing nine startups and he was an investment banker not that we'll like him for that but before that he helped other entrepreneurs raise money after his third startup, he went back to school to become an entrepreneurship professor. Didn't finish it. Instead, he went out and did another startup, his fourth. He's a 15-year volunteer, teacher, mentor, judge, and board member at the University of Washington's Burke Center for Entrepreneurship, which is one of the top 20 rated programs in the U.S. and one of the top five for public schools. Now, Terry's the CEO of his new startup, I guess this is his ninth storage in Seattle and he's living proof that you don't need an education to be a successful entrepreneur. His English teacher would be horrified because he spells the company name with two R's S-T-O-R-R-A-G-E It's appalling. Kids kids are not going to get anywhere. Storage is a great idea though. And it's an Uber-like business model. It has the potential to disrupt the $20 billion-plus self-storage industry. So, why don't we find out what we can about this guy? Hi, Terry. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Thanks, Bob. <laughs> uh, I'm enjoying the I'm enjoying the misspelling. That uh, that's pretty fun. Uh, it's, it's all it's all about the domain names, you know. Uh, the storage one was gone. So I understand. Two R's is what we are. <laughs> yeah, I understand perfectly. Um, you were there with the dot com, uh, the dot com bubble in the late nineties, <laughs> to say the least. Um, you raised nearly half a billion dollars for Home Grocer and uh, to rack up sales of a million dollars a day only to see it fail when um, money became impossible to get it's just amazing when you look back at it what happened and how it happened so bloody quickly and what happens when money does dry up jeez it was just left a trail of devastation now there are lots of people who think that this market that we're in now is overheated and that valuations are ridiculously high and I'm one of those, I subscribe to that theory. So what's the difference between the dot-com boom and the current tech boom? Well, I, I think, you know, for someone who is as old as I am and has seen this kind of come and go, with each with each kind of wave, everybody says, you know, this time it's going to be different. Sure. But I think there's always, you know, it's always um, supply and demand, um, the venture community and, and investment folks. And, and I'm glad you don't hold too much against me. I was very young when I was an investment banker. Uh, and all I learned was that um, the, the only difference between people who started businesses and those that didn't was that the ones that started them actually did something about it. I mean, everybody talks about them, but, but I never saw any difference. So helping other people raise money, I figured that the bar was actually low enough that I could get under it. <laughs> so uh, uh, And all that stuff. But, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting now looking at some of them. And I think, you know, there are some amazing businesses out there. And so, you know, do I think Uber is a, you know, is a, an amazing business and a transformative one? Absolutely. It's hard to imagine it's worth 50 billion. Yeah, um, I agree. 
and you know and that sort of stuff and i think the thing that you know uh, you know now they call all of those businesses unicorns yeah. um you know they're worth more than a billion in doing that and, and we were a unicorn you know back in the late 90s and um i think the biggest thing was overnight we went from being able to raise you know 100 million dollars in a few phone calls to not being able to raise a million dollars you know with months of work and so i worry so much with those businesses that where the, where the business model is unsustainable, you know, we lose money in every order, but we're going to make it up on volume. And our primary business seems to be raising, you know, hundreds of millions of, of dollars all the time. And we're going to have a fantastic one. database. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I think it is fascinating. Now, I would be one of the ones that's a believer that, that some of that data does have huge value, but, but you've got to have the, the staying power. So, you know, can Google make a big data play? Absolutely. And Facebook and all those ones, because they're going to be around. Yeah. But if you're, if you're a new startup, I mean, I think, I just think, you know, like every other cycle, sometimes some this stuff, when the, when the merry-go-round, you know, sort of stops, is going to be very ugly for some of the businesses. And, you know, you talk so much about how we share our experiences to help others learn. It was a truly horrific experience to watch your, you know, my business die yeah. uh, and, and be, and with nothing to be able to do for it. So I, it's not something I would wish on, you know, my worst enemy. Yeah. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I feel, I feel, I know I, worry for some of these businesses and, and, and ones that um, just because you're successful in raising money does not mean you have a viable business. You know, yeah. and, you, and you've got to have a bit of chutzpah, haven't you? I mean, Uber, the, Uber today uh, has gone to the banks asking for $1 billion <laughs> in credit. A billion in credit at the bank. It, it, Fuck. The yeah. only banks I know are the ones that say, you want what? No. <laughs> Well, well, and it's and it's funny, and they will play the fashion game. I mean, the only industry I think that's more fashion conscious than the fashion industry is the investment industry, both the investment banks and the venture capitalists. I mean, I think Uber could ask you to, you know, extract your firstborn child or something like that in their next deal sheet or whatever, yeah. and people would probably willingly sign up for it. But so all fun. Okay, now this is a, this is a. A bit touchy, but I don't mean it to be. One of the keys to being successful these days is to have a great public relations company working for you, and you sure have that. Let me let me tell you what Ralph says about you. Terry has several personal traits that are key to a successful entrepreneur. He's relentlessly high energy and a half-full glass type of guy. He's resilient, a master communicator, humble. Hmm. I'm starting to worry about this guy's... <laughs> Judgment, but and fun, and he inspires loyalty in his staff and even in his investors. And he's smart and savvy. In many ways, he looks like and res- resembles Seattle Seahawk head coach Pete Carroll. God. Are you kidding me? No, that's the bullshit they sent me. So, what? Are, what are the most? <laughs> what are the most important? You've got all these qualities, right? Um, so what's Good the most God. important qualities required by an entrepreneur in today's market? Is it relentless high energy? Is it amazing positivity? Is it being a great communicator? Humble. Jesus, you're about the last person I'd call humble, but nevertheless. Okay, so what, what's the most important quality? So, so my very first uh, uh, boss, when I was back when I was an investment banker, was uh, a very, a very smart guy, and his basic line that has stuck with me my whole career is, persistence is omnipotent. And his basic theme is, in everything in life, if you just stick, sticking at it is the number one thing that you need to do. And so I've always kind of had that at the, um, um, at the back of my mind. Now, what, what, you know, one thing Ralph says is, I am a, hopelessly optimistic person and, and I'm sure you've seen some of that Malcolm Gladwell research yeah. and he call he calls it delusionally optimistic and you know if you're if you're if you look at as you mentioned the statistics of, of how bad it is you know and how how unlikely you are to have a successful business most sane people would basically stay right away from it um, yeah, sure. but I, I'm one of those ones where I actually don't believe the glass is half full I believe it's bubbling over right <laughs> yeah, I, I do that, too I do too I think I, yeah. I agree yeah. now yeah. okay let's, yeah. just, let's just take you up on one point about that being persistent and being relentless and staying at it um, most of the successful businesses today at some point early in their career had to pivot you know you, you plan something that looks brilliant you get out there and you start to do it and 
you know, the shit hits the fan and the whole thing's a mess. Um, if Do people that are relentless and driven and this is going to work and I really believe in it, do they miss that pivot point? Well, I, I guess maybe I'd, I'd probably def, uh, say it a little differently. So I'm a great believer in pivots. And so, so well, back in the day, I was a, um, I was a halfback, and we'd have this brilliantly called play. And then basically, you know, as soon as the ball snapped, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. And you just look for freaking daylight. Yep. And so I'm a, I'm a total believer. Uh, a viable business, you know, you, I like to pick a category. So I really like the storage space. The offsite storage space is a great thing. You know, it's $20 billion. It's a great space. But I'm not 100% positive that we've got the exact right offering for customers. So when we, when we start and we get out there, I'm convinced we can find it, and that's my relentless thing. But right. what we're going to do is just keep trying stuff until we find things that work. So, so I would be completely. I, I have no sort of. There's no sacred cows with me. It doesn't matter what. Like, if we yeah. find a better name than stores with two R's, we'll freaking take it. If yeah, sure, we originally sure. started off, yeah, yeah, and the branding color we we picked originally was orange. We tested it, and everyone hated it. Yeah. So we basically tested it and got a different one. So, so I I think pivot is the most important thing you do. I mean, we used to. Call it learning. I mean, I know it's you know it's not as nice as a, a word. Pivot sounds like you've really screwed up. But any <laughs> any business, I mean, but but no one no one gets it right the first time. I no, mean, we all right. try different things. Yeah. So 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 I think and that that whole thing, you've got to be willing to experiment, to try, to fail because you get it wrong ninety percent of the time. It's just. If you keep banging away at it long enough, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're too dumb to quit, um, which I, I would be, um, you know, you kind of do it. So, so about the only thing I wish he'd said I was more like Marshawn Lynch or something than Pete Carroll. <laughs> <laughs> I do have that big grin. I, I will admit I am a big, I'm a big, uh, a big smile guy, but, uh, but, but you should have asked my wife for some other ones. She would probably beg to differ on a number of those, especially the master communicator part. <laughs> So, or, what, uh, what's the best advice anybody gave you about being entrepreneur or did nobody give you advice and you just started off with your first one and you've learnt you know as you've gone along the way through your mistakes you, you know I think um, so much of growing up um, um, my dad was uh, worked for another company worked for a company he was, uh, um, he was an oil and gas guy and he had a corporate job but he always wanted to have his own business so we just talked and talked and talked about that and what was what was possible it was kind of seeing was possible you know I just saw this thing today what do you think about that coming up with ideas and so I'd say you know his thing was always um, if you can see what the opportunity is you know you can you can turn it into reality you know you just kind of have to work hard at it um, on that piece um, that the best advice I ever got actually was my first boss who said that you know, the persistence is omnipotent that's the one that's kind of stuck with me you know the number of times the number of investors I have who turned me down Oh, say ten or twelve times, you know, would be there. I'm nothing if not relentless. Is one of the, the the comments that kind of comes back to you, and and do it with a good humor on that piece. Um, now, I grew up in Canada, and uh, in Canada, being an entrepreneur is not something that's um, that's yeah. very well regarded. So, you know, um, I regularly got the the thing, and I always remember this one banker telling me that. You know, why don't you just get a nice government job or work for a big bank? You know, yeah. entrepreneurs are kind of social pariahs. You know, people will look down on you with disdain. You know, which yeah. is a reason why you move to the U.S., where we're mainstream. You know, yeah. people. But one of the things, Australia is a bit like Canada, I guess, in that if you're mm-hmm. an entrepreneur in Australia, nobody wants to give you money, nobody wants to give you help, nobody wants to do anything. Over here. Um, people applaud entrepreneurs. I mean, they they want to support mm-hmm. you. They'll give you help. They'll do whatever. So I understand where you're coming from with with the Canada thing. Um, but being an entrepreneur, I mean, I can't imagine not being an entrepreneur. I've always been an entrepreneur, and well, apart from a couple of short periods. But um, you know, it, it's exciting. You can you can, you build your own future. You build. You make your own decisions. You you are in charge of your own destiny. And yet, somebody who works in a bank is a good, solid citizen. And you know, the most they ever do is say, "Good morning, Mrs. Smith. How are you? How's the kids? Would you like that in tens or twenties? I mean, you'd fucking kill yourself in a week, wouldn't you? And yet, they're the pillar of the no, community. Yeah, and the pillar of the community. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, saying hello and no, no, no. I'm sorry, we can't get that. If you got any more collateral, we only like dirt. You know, give us some, give us some dirt you can yeah. borrow against. But and you want to borrow a no, hundred thousand? Well, you need a hundred and fifty thousand in our bank before we'll lend it to you. 
Yeah. Jeez. No, I think it's different. But but I think I think the reason, you know, it's always amazing to watch the US reinvent itself with yeah. each successive one. That people call them up, but I think it, it is that resilient spirit and, and they say, Here, if you've screwed up something, people then think you're one step closer to being successful. You know, yeah. it's the the reverse in Canada, it's like, Oh no, I knew that wasn't gonna work, you know. That yeah. was a disaster for day one or whatever it is. And yeah. so, but but I think that's 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 uh, that's unfortunate for the culture and for the economies of Australia, of Canada, of, of just about everywhere else. In the Although world. England's getting yeah, a lot England. better, I must admit, it's 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 getting much better. But um, mm-hmm. here, you go to somebody and you say, "What do you think of this idea?" And they say, uh, "If you're in Australia, uh, you say, what do you think of this idea?'" And they say, oh, "I knew somebody had tried that. That that'll never work. You know, I've that'll seen never that before. Work. That'll never work. You know." So when you go in and you say. I need five hundred thousand dollars. Do you want to invest in this? They go, jeez, good one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's, well, what's I, I would. I, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say I've had a few more colorful um, uh, descriptions of that. Uh, that rejection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what's the worst That's advice fun. anybody gave you about um, being an entrepreneur? Well, well, it's actually it's pretty close to what you mentioned before that um, there's a difference between being stubborn and being persistent. Yeah, um, sure. You know, and that thing where people are unwilling to kind of accept that, um, you know, the, the to, to listen to what customers say. At the end of the day, customers are right. You may think you've got the greatest idea and the greatest feature, but they, you know, they vote with their wallets and their feet. Absolutely. And if, and if, yeah, if you're, you know, and I was it objectively, if no one buys your idea, it's a bad idea. You know, if you got it out, got it out there and you tried it and, and nobody liked it, then you need to go back to the drawing board and find something that they actually will. And so I'd say that I've had a few people just, you know, ignore what everybody says, you know, you trust your gut feel and do it, you know, as opposed to, you know, be open, listen to, to people who've had other experiences, look at the data. You know, actually, um, you know, it's it's nice to have an opinion, but I'd rather have data, you know, in terms of what customers actually did or didn't do. Well, how do you equate that to people like, um, let's say, Jobs and Musk? I mean, why don't we, um, you know, I'm a bit of an engineer and I tinker around. Why don't I build a rocket that nobody else has been able to build? NASA hasn't been able to build. I don't know anything about building rockets, but I'll build one. Why don't I build a car and I'll price it at $125,000? <laughs> and, you know, people are going to flock to my car. Um, or, you know, I'm, I'm going to build a phone. Or I'm going to build a computer. Or I'm going to build a phone and it's going to have all these millions of things i'm going to build a watch that's a, an inch square and it, you know it, it's going to have 500 buttons and you're going to be able to do anything i mean surely the public wasn't ready for any of those things no no i agree and, and, and i think steve jobs was absolutely right when he said that you know market research is is basically worthless when you're trying to invent new stuff yeah. um and then the, be- the best research is to do you know put it out there you know for him i think his vision was amazing he was the ultimate, you know, user experience thing. For him, it all came down to that fabulous, easy customer experience that was just better than anything that's out there. And he, know, also, Musk, I think, is, he also had this fantastic understanding of design and what looked great. Mm-hmm. And the, so it had the functionality, but it also looked fabulous. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a style. Now it's a complete, I mean, look at them. They're taking share now at the highest possible price. They're kind of, you know, wiping everybody else because now, you know, it's kind of like if you don't have an iPhone, you're kind of a, you know, giant loser. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. but, but on that one, now Musk, I think is, is another, it's just another brilliant one where it's reinventing industries. So, you know, we're trying to do an electric car. How the heck do we get a cost effective battery? How do we do that? And so looking for those standard components. So you, you know, who, you know, the cheapest things are often things done in huge volume. So what's the highest volume, you know, super uh, efficient battery? Well, it turns out to be a laptop battery. So <laughs> no one else would be crazy enough to string together 10,000 laptop batteries to power the car. But of course he did. Yeah. And then the same thing, you know, let's, let's put together, you know, we need electric motors to do it. Well, who makes a lot of motors of a certain size and find the one that, oh yeah, well, this is a standard one. They make 10 bazillion of these instead of designing something from scratch. Yeah. You know, I just think I mean, for him, I think the business model innovations, the, it's the creativity applied to all the different parts of the process and trying to, to, to think out of the box. 
everyone's always done it this way. Well, you know, is there a different way of doing it? He looks at it from in 3D instead of everyone's looking at it in 1D. Yeah. So, and those guys are, are, are brilliant and, and I think see what's possible and lead society into some of the new things. So, Musk, you know, space Musk is really not, extraordinary. But, you know, the interesting <clears throat> thing about Musk is that it wasn't that long ago that, um, you know, he was sleeping on his mother's couch. I mean, it was years, but it wasn't that long ago. And, um, you know, if you listen to his wife, his wife says, you know, Elon is absolutely brilliant entrepreneur, but fuck, he's a lousy father. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's... Well, that's but I think, you know, uh, um, it is balancing. So, so I have um, I've been very fortunate in my career to to um, early on a, a good you know, one of my best buddies from uh, from back in, in the um, university days, Canada College here, um, uh, got me involved in the um, Young Presidents Organization, the Entrepreneurs Organization. Yep. Actually, I said the Entrepreneurs Organization is great, and one of the things that they try and encourage you to do is actually have some life balance. Which, I mean, entrepreneurs were really really shitty at that. Uh, yeah, and again, sure. ask my wife. Um, and so that's probably been one of the best things because it's not sustainable. You know, that whole thing of, you know, I've been fortunate to have found a saint who's put up with me for 26 years. Right. Um, but, but, you know, <laughs> there were a few times when, when, when she wasn't putting up with me very well. Yeah. Um, or, or, and that, so, so I think that's there. And then Musk, I think the other one was, you know, geez, it wasn't, it was only a few years ago when everyone thought he was crazy with both Tesla and SpaceX were overextended. Yeah. And I think he was again sleeping on his couch, on his couch or something at that stage. Yeah. And now look at him. So, I mean, again, you know, you're, you're brilliant when it's going well and you're a total idiot when it's going bad. And, but you know, yeah, actually didn't change anything in those two days. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, I think Marissa Meyer got the Mar- Marissa Meyer got the life balance thing right. She said, you know, you need a balance in life. You've got a balance between work and leisure and and your lifestyle. And the way you've got to do that is the first twenty years it's all work, and the last twenty years it's all lifestyle. Because trying to mix the two together <laughs> doesn't work. And I think that's probably yeah. pretty accurate. You know, it's funny. I guess I'm optimistic. It's uh, it's it's easy for me to say that now because, of course, I've now got both. You know, one one kid already graduated from college, and the other one is now you know as a senior this year, and so they're not underfoot. But certainly, I mean, my kids and my my wife paid a significant penalty for me me just not being around through sure. pretty much the entire dot com days. Yeah, um, and I now you know, my son. Yeah, which, which is tough. But, but I think if you can figure out, but that's again, maybe you choose a more lifestyle-oriented business to be an entrepreneur in, where you can have a decent life um, instead of doing these crazy, you know, yeah. crazy ones uh, okay. on, on that side. You've done nine startups, so you've obviously got a commitment issue. Um, <laughs> at, at what point in a startup do you decide that it's time to bail, and what influences that decision, or do you hang around until they absolutely go broke and you say, "Oh well, shit, I think I better think of another one." Was that what, <laughs> you know, with those startups? At what point did you decide that mm, this isn't going to work? For me, the part that I get excited about is solving the problem. Is the, the creative process involved in solving the problem and? trying to figure out how to bring. So I've been a pioneer in, in most of the industries I've gone into because I kind of saw what was possible. And then I, I, I've generally stayed with them. And so, you know, it's, I'm nine businesses over 29 years or whatever. So I'm about three years for most of them. Yeah. And that's been usually long enough to figure it out. And it's when it becomes routine. So I'm really excited about doing the early financial projections and trying to dig into the numbers to see what works and solving all the problems. You know, I, I'm, I'm probably a product guy more than any anything else, looking at the product, you know, the service, exactly how, you know, the customer interaction kind of works. But once it works, I I find I like, you know, I find it very, very difficult just to maintain my interest. So, I mean, that's, you know, pure ADD. Um, So you want to find somebody to buy it at that point. Yeah, or just recruit a great team. Right. Um, you know, usually I, I'll try and recruit people all the way through the process because you need you need people who are totally details oriented. So I will be uber details oriented early on, and then then I'm regularly accused by about year three or four of being a macro manager, the right. other end of the spectrum. Yeah. Where unless it's a new product feature, I'm generally not, or, or international expansion or something like that. You know, I, think that's I, a I would good spend thing. most. I think after you've been in a business uh, no. a couple of years, you need to become a macro manager. Otherwise, your company is going to fail. 
Well, well and, and it's hard to attract people. You know what I mean? You yeah. want to attract and retain good people. Well, I mean, part of it, the one thing I, I have that, that is usually appreciated by the same people. And so the same, the same people are, are, are basically dumb enough to, to work with me again and again and invest with me again and again. And I think part of it is because of that is that, you know, they get to, you actually do, I actually do want their, their opinion and to, to whatever degree is possible, try and make them make the decisions. So the person is closest to the decision. You know, we've always had it, you know, I've done a lot of businesses that are del- delivery, pickup and delivery, where there's a driver that basically comes to your, you know, your door. Those people have always had total discretion to solve whatever the customer is up- upset about. Right. You know, kind of, if they did something really dumb repeatedly, we'd probably talk to them. But if they said, yeah, you get, you know, six months free of something or, you know, we'll give you a free whatever, yeah. we would basically just say, fine, ask them what it's going to take to basically make them, you know, uh, happy. To get the deal. And, yeah. And use, just, yeah, and use your, your good judgment. And what, I've never been burned by that. You know, we've, we've never been burned by, the, by our staff doing that. We've been burned the odd time by a customer taking advantage of that. Sure. But it's rare. Most, most people are, are very reasonable. Um, on that. Okay. Side. Now, you've raised half a billion dollars in funding for your startups, and and I'm not a raising funds type guy. You know, it's something that is not in my DNA. But um, raising funds is difficult. So, do you do you enjoy it? And what what makes you good at it? Well, it, it, I'm it, learning. This now. one is <laughs> well, and this one this one is there. Um, it's a necessary evil, and and I'd say in that it is the least. This is the thing I enjoy doing least. I've never liked it. I mean, it's funny. Uh, early on, I can't remember. Uh, one time, it was like the two things I never wanted to do was public speaking and fundraising. And as an entrepreneur, you spend most of your time doing doing both, one or yeah. the other. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, so, so. But I think what it is, and so I, um, early in my career, and it was always. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a very enthusiastic person, and I'm very passionate about what I'm working on, and and that usually comes through. And so with, sure. with people, it was nothing other than I didn't have a canned pitch. You know, I usually had a canned pitch and I'd toss that out and I'd just start getting going on about what was exciting about it and answer their questions and can try and get them excited about what was possible. And, you know, it, it would be great to get you involved in, in, uh, in helping do this thing. And, and normally the one thing I do on funding that's probably a little different is I usually seek out people specifically for skill sets or connections. So, you know, um, on my current one, um, um, in the, in the storage business, you know, a friend of a friend was the guy who was the founder, uh, Neil Balters, the founder of California yep. Closets. Well, I figure he knows a heck of a lot about, you know, um, storage and, and on-site and off-site and racking all it. So I just reached out and said, Neil, you know, um, you know, my buddy Steely says you're a great guy and I would absolutely love to have you involved in the business. And here's why. And, 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 and again, it's, it's a thing of, it's like he's pre-qualified and he does have expertise and, and most people want to help you. I mean, that's yeah. the other thing, you know, sort of really found. And the same thing, find out somebody who's got an expertise in, um, another guy, you know, self-storage or somebody else in franchise. And just ask them specifically for their help. And so that, that I'd say for me, it's been less it's been less about selling probably and more about marketing on the fundraising side. And being identify what you're yeah. you know, like identify what you're looking for. But I but it's not something I've I've ever enjoyed. Now, um I really had a bad experience at the end of Home Grocer because I couldn't save it. There was nothing I could do and investors that had promised they would always be there and bail us out all, you know, stopped returning my calls. Yeah. And so I didn't, I was really very, very jaded for at least probably 10 years. I did not want to raise any money. So I let a lot of opportunities go by simply because I was unwilling to do the fundraising that would have been required. Um, changed a little bit in the last little while when a good friend, you know, sort of said to me, one of my friends from an entrepreneurs group, uh, Ben Hansen, and just said, you don't want to be, you don't want, um, you don't try to think of exactly the way he said it, but it was basically, um, don't let your unwillingness to raise money be the reason that you don't make this a huge success. Right. And it was kind of like a smack on the head. And since then, I've just gone the reverse way, which is I'm freaking dialing for dollars today. So here's the deal. I'm going to relentlessly call you and let, until you invest. And so here you can you know, uh, save yourself a lot of pain and basically just get your checkbook out right now. Or I'm just going to keep bugging you until you finally relent uh, and have a bit of fun with it, with a bit of humor, okay. you know. Hey, it's, cool. it's your buddy dialing for dollars. Yes, <laughs> I am looking funny from you. And, and, and it's kind of funny if you, because often it's a difficult thing for people to bring up and stuff. But, but you know, these days, I mean, there's amazing angel networks. Lots of people have, you sure. know, been very successful in a bear and other ways. So, 
So, but I, I view it now, I probably don't dislike it as much as I used to. Um, but, but, but you just have to do it. That's, that's yeah. a big part of your job. If you're raising, you know, if you're, if you need a bunch of capital, that's your freaking job. So suck it up and get it done. Yep. Okay. We've only got a couple of minutes left. So give me your best pitch on storage. Tell us all about storage and why we should be all going straight to your website and looking it up. <laughs> well, self-storage is, is I think the next, in, you know, sort of industry that is going to be disrupted. And it's a business that, um, um, where convenience is not something that's sort of part of the vernacular. And so I think for us, what we do is we call it valet storage. And so, you know, everyone will think about, you know, um, us doing the work for them and that's pretty much it. So what we do that's different is instead of making you go to a facility, rent a fixed size place, a 10 foot by 10 foot unit or 10 by 20, we basically come to you, we drop off boxes that you can put your stuff in, we put a little ID tag on it so you can take pictures and give it names and everything and track it easily, and then we pick it up and store it for you. And when you want it back, we just deliver it to you. And all that, you know, including the pickup, the delivery, and the storage, will cost you about the same or less than what traditional self-storage is. So so we think customers are going to vote with their feet and their wallets, and yeah, they're going to say... That sounds like a pretty good idea, I reckon. Because yeah. and storage is a pain in the ass. You got to go. You get your rent your storage thing. You go and you've got this huge box, and you've got a quarter full, and you're paying for the lot. And yeah, I can see it. I like it. Terry, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, if you'd like to know more about storage, now don't forget this guy can't spell. It's S-T-O-R-R-A-G-E, two R's. So go to storage with two R's dot com. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice American Business after this short break. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're the number one business radio show for entrepreneurs. And today we're broadcasting from my hometown of Los Angeles. And don't forget, if you want to uh, listen to any of the last 210 or so shows, go to either Voice America Business Archives or go on to bobpritchard.com and they are all there for you. So you can go back and listen to how we started. (laughs) Maybe you don't want to do that. Today, customer service is absolutely critical to running a successful business, to building customer base, and also getting customers to come back and back and back again. Excellent communication with customers is an integral part of that process. Now, when we were young, we learned not to mention an old flame in front of a new partner, never ask an older woman her age, or a younger one if she's pregnant, because nine times out of ten they're just fat, don't ask somebody about their salary, or their sex life, or their shoe size, or their religion, we learned all those, even customer support agents, you know, people like customer service people and sales people who earn the living by speaking to customers sometimes need to be reminded what they should and should not say. Desk.com, the -the out-of-the-box customer support from Salesforce, which helps small businesses make customers happy. Well, they talk a lot to customer service professionals. So ranging from merely cringeworthy to enraging, here are eight things I recommend your team should never say to a customer. The first one, never say to a customer, you did it incorrectly. Customers frequently fuck things up and can be incredibly frustrating to the sales team. How often do you think things like, what do you mean you can't see the red buttons? God, it's right in front of your face. 
It's good to remind your customer service and sales team that what seems obvious to them is not as apparent to people who aren't thinking about your product all day long, especially where technology is concerned. You're much better off just to walk them through how to do it and not tell them what idiots they are. The second thing you should not say to a customer is, that's not something that I can help you with. Sure, there are a lot of things like lowering the price of your product or changing shipping schedules that are totally outside your scope, but there are better ways for them and you to tell customers that you can't help. If a customer's asking for something that's out of your control, you can explain that you're not an expert in that area, but promise to connect them to the person that is, and then make sure that that person actually does contact them. Thirdly, never pretend you know the answer if you don't. Nobody likes a know-all, and especially a know-all that doesn't really know anything. It's especially true for customer service people. If your agents aren't sure whether a problem is actually a bug or how to troubleshoot it, it's okay for them to let the customer know that they'll get in touch with the right person to investigate and they will get back to them when they have an answer. Now, customers appreciate honesty and they certainly don't want to phone back again if they get an answer that's wrong from someone who thinks they know it all but don't. The fourth thing your customer service or salespeople should not say to a customer is, I promise you we are getting this new feature that will. Although it might be well-intentioned, if you make promises about new features, it can burn you. It's important to let customers know that you're listening, but when you make promises that... um, about things that are not in your control, it can lead to a lot more problems. Instead, explain how your company takes client suggestions and prioritizes them based on demand so that customers can understand why their specific request may not be working immediately. The next thing you should not say is sorry. You might say, don't you want your salespeople to to apologize? Well, let's be honest. More support people, most support people aren't sorry for anything. Whatever the issue is, it's usually someone else's fault. A user did something wrong, there's a problem with the product, a broken code, etc. Customers can tell when an apology is fake and it can frustrate them even more. Encourage your customer contact. Tell your people to avoid the inauthentic apologies and to focus on offering fast, effective solutions and to make sure they never, ever offer a sarcastic comment or a sarcastic sorry, but one that is really not an I'm not sorry apology. Also, never say, I'm going to have Fred call you back in five minutes because um, If you can't keep that promise and if Fred's not going to call back in exactly five minutes, you should never offer a specific time. The seventh thing you should not say is thank you for your feedback. So it's just just words. Thank you for your feedback sounds robotic and insincere. Don't use it. And the last thing you should not say to a customer is nothing at all. Leaving customers on the phone with dead air makes for a really terrible experience. So I encourage your people to put them on hold and let them listen to nice music. Not that Muzak shit, nice music. Tell them how the weather is, whether they're excited about the holidays, who they want to win the Super Bowl, anything, but keep them talking and keep them interested. 
Now, make sure that you subscribe to my monthly newsletter and the radio show summary, which is sent out to about 16,000 people, business executives in over 60 countries every month. Subscribe by simply going to bobpritchard.com. Thank you for joining us for today's show, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. In the meanwhile, remember that if you're not really pushing the envelope, and if you're not living right on the edge, then you are taking up way too much space. Get out of the road. Let somebody who wants to succeed go ploughing through. And remember, it's easier It's also a hell of a lot more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. This is Bob Pritchard, and I look forward to your company again next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.